This is the um, concluding talk in this series. We've had uh, seven so far. This is number eight. And it's called Secular Dharma. I'm going to try to wrap up some of the threads that we have been following, but also to, um, to consider what this secular dharma might look like, where it might be going, uh, whether it might even be viable. But before we begin, I'd like to just qualify a point that has came up in the discussion this afternoon. Um, and we've been pondering the last days, and that is the the um, the idea of beholding the stopping of reactivity, which is um, the third of these four tasks. We saw the other day how this. Um, is something that is said to be clearly visible. What we um, behold, the beholding of the stopping, which is also the stopping of reactivity, of the experience of a glimpse of nirvana, of uh, an ethical freedom, that this is clearly visible. It's right before our eyes. This was, I think, quite explicit in the dialogue with uh, Sivaka. But we have to also take into consideration another passage. This is in the Arya Parayesana Sutta, the Discourse on the Noble Quest in the Buddha's account of his awakening, where he states that uh, this Nibbana, this ceasing of reactivity, um, is something that is dudasu in Pali, which means hard to see. So we have to bear in mind that what is clearly visible is hard to see. And I think this perhaps also um, qualifies this set of tasks as something that may be um, in some ways self-evident but that doesn't mean that it's obvious or easy to do it. And I feel that we need that counterbalance to, um, to prevent maybe a certain sense that this is all you know, totally straightforward. It might be tremendously demanding, in fact. So what does it mean to say that something is clearly visible but hard to see? There's an image in Zen of the fish who spends its life swimming through the oceans looking for water. So the water is clearly visible, but for the fish, it's hard to see. In some senses, it's too close. It's, it's too much, uh, it, it's too present, it's too intimate almost such that uh, we fail to see it. But if you think about it, some, if something is hard to see, this doesn't just mean that uh, it's somehow 
optically difficult to actually notice it with the eyes. But it could also mean that it's hard to see and that it is actually, it is actually very challenging to see. This word, du uh, dasso, dasso is to see. Du is the same du as in dukkha. It means uh, difficult, maybe even painful. So things, some things are hard to see, not because they're difficult to uh, apprehend visually, but because they are, they're difficult to bear. It's, it's hard to see something very cruel or something, you know, the starving people in Africa or some carnage after a bomb has dropped. We can open our eyes and look at it, but it's hard for us to see it. And I wonder if, in fact, uh, this might be part of what's meant as well. It's actually quite difficult to open our eyes and really behold uh, the, the possibilities that are open to us. The fact that um, uh, we are free in a way uh, that offers us enormous possibilities, but that freedom can sometimes be rather overwhelming and rather scary. Uh, it's much easier perhaps to rest in the comfort zone of our certainties, of our convictions. When we think of uh, nirvana or um, emptiness as something that is uh, uh, unpin-downable, something that cannot quite be captured in concepts or words, um, that removes from experience the uh, the convenience and the comfort and the familiarity of how we're used to seeing ourselves in the world. We're challenged to, to question. We're challenged to recognize that we don't really know what's going on here. There's something of an abyss, something very uh, depth, some, some, something with almost infinite depth that opens up. And this again reminds us of how uh, we understand the idea of the sublime. The sublime is said to be that which exceeds our capacity for representation. Uh, it's something that brings the mind to a stop. And this is traditionally amongst the romantic poets. Uh, <coughs> you know, violent storms in the middle of the night, uh, the swell of the sea, um, when you're alone in a tiny boat. Um, things that are both uh, fascinating, but also, at some level, rather terrifying. And I think, again, if we're going to move this practice into the experience of, of art, we go beyond what is merely beautiful and attractive and pleasing into visions of the human condition that can be sometimes very difficult to, uh, to bear, very difficult to somehow hold in our mind. So this would be another dimension that we could perhaps open up in this uh, practice, 
an aspect which is rather darker, more difficult to, uh, to comprehend, difficult to live with, difficult to uh, tolerate in some way. I think that way of looking at it gives it an additional uh, sense of depth, of seriousness, like death, for example. Death is clearly visible, it's kind of obvious, but there are moments when it uh, is also uh, profoundly unsettling. And, but that unsettlingness has an edge of, of realness to it, an edge of truth uh, that we recognize but find difficult really to um, come to terms with. I'm going to read you a passage now that um, is also in your handout. Um, I don't know what the heading is or the number is. It's a very short passage. It comes from the Anguttara Nikaya. And it concerns... Um, in the copy you have, I think it's the householder Mahanama. Mahanama was the Buddha's cousin who took on the job of running Sakya was a student of the Buddha and um, a great deal about him is known from the suttas and he's regarded to have been a stream entrant but perhaps somewhat more than that because in this passage um, and I'll read it this is how he's described I, I'm afraid I don't oh hang on it's in here can you find it what is it called is it number 10 could be that's right, the 21, yeah. Number 10. The 21, number 10. Bhikkhus, possessing six qualities, the householder Mahanama has found fulfillment in the Tathagata, become a seer of the deathless, goes about having beheld the deathless, and what are these six qualities? Lucid confidence in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha, noble virtue, noble understanding, and noble liberation. There are, the reason it's called the 21, or I've called it the 21, is because there are a sequence of 21 suttas which are all identical to this, except with a different name attached. Um, so it's exactly the same, but then it says the householder Chitta, the householder Anattapindika, uh, the householder X, the householder Y. There are 21 Gahapati householders um, who the Buddha recognizes as having found fulfillment in the Tathagata, become a seer of the deathless, who go about having beheld the deathless. This is actually quite an unusual statement. Uh, it only occurs this one time, or this 21 times in sequence, suttas number 119 to 139 uh, in the Anguttara section 6, 
Um, but what it, um, uh, what it reveals is that at the Buddha's time, these 21 people, none of whom became monks, unfortunately they're all men, I was rather hoping one of them at least might be a woman, these are people who, held, who led very active and busy lives at the Buddha's time. Mahanama, as we've seen, was the governor of Sakya. Uh, another one included is, um, uh, what's his name? I forget now. But anyway, I've gone through this list of 21. Most of them are very obscure figures. Who uh, Some of them are not even mentioned anywhere else in the canon except for in this passage. We know nothing about them. But the ones that we can identify uh, were merchants, government officials, bankers, the doctor, the Buddhist doctor, the man called Jivaka. Um, Pasenadi is not included. So we have, in a sense, a kind of a snapshot of um, a group of people involved in the world with no aspiration to to step back and become monks, but who um, go about having beheld the deathless. They become seers of the deathless. Now the deathless, as we've seen, is synonymous with nirvana. It's synonymous with the unconditioned. So these are people in ordinary life who have seen nirvana, who have seen the deathless, who have seen the unconditioned, but it's the next sentence that is perhaps even more striking. They go about having beheld the deathless. In other words, they go about is iriati in Pali. It's the word for posture. So they, they basically function and operate and do their business in the world from having beheld. Beheld is the same verb as in behold the stopping of reactivity. It's, it's sachi karoti, not a common word, so it refers quite explicitly to this third task. And they live in the world having beheld uh, the sphere of non-reactivity. I would, I mean, I'm translating it very literally, past participle, having beheld. But I think what it means is that they live their lives from the perspective of that non-reactive space. And in that sense, they are, um, they are living within the stream of the path, the Eightfold Path. And then when it lists their qualities, again, we get the definitions of the stream entrant. Lucid confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. But then three other things. Noble virtue, sila, noble understanding, panya, and noble liberation, vimuti. So, from orthodox position, this um, uh, inclusion of noble liberation is 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 very is very uh, unusual. Um, it suggests that there are ordinary householders um, operating in the world embodying the qualities that are usually associated with arhants, with people of a much higher uh, level of uh, <coughs> awakening. From a 
critical, hist historical critical perspective, this is the sort of passage that is very likely to be original. Uh, for the reason, as I've mentioned before, because it would not have been in the interests of the monastic orthodoxy to have added it later. It's, it, it's, it's, it's strange that it's, in a sense, uh, survived. Um, I think it gives a sense of um, a community um, at the Buddha's time uh, that uh, embraced equally those who had renounced the world, become mendicants, become teachers, um, who wandered around uh, different uh, villages and towns, um, spreading the Dharma, but also people who were adherents, I don't like the word lay people, uh, adherents, upasika, upasika, um, who were likewise operating in the world uh, from this same perspective. Um, again, I can't remember if I said this already here or not, but there is a, a passage that occurs in, um, in the Sanskrit version of the Buddha's awakening. Uh, it does occur in the Pali, but at a different place towards the end of the Buddha's life, where after the awakening, instead of the Buddha going into this long hesitation, what should I do, should I teach, no one will understand this, and then Brahma appearing, and saying there are little, there are people out there with little dust on their eyes, you know, who need to be taught the Dharma, which I think is a very dubious myth. Uh, as we, I think it's basically giving authority to the Hindu god Brahma. It probably comes from a later period. But there's another version of this story, in which after the awakening, instead of going into this a long period of vacillation which is a bit odd too, in a way. The uh, Buddha uh, is approached by two merchants, Tapusa and Balika, I think they're called, who are actually also among these 21. And uh, they offer him some very rich food, and he gets severe indigestion. Now this, again, is a passage that's likely not to have been added later. It makes the, doesn't, you know, makes the Buddha look a bit you know, fond of, Good food. He gets, he eats this rich food. He then falls very ill with stomach cramps, and then Mara comes up to him, which is a way of saying, you know, he feels as though he's about to die. And Mara says to him, "Now is the time to enter the final nirvana." In other words, now is the time to die. You've achieved your enlightenment. What more do you want? And in response, the Buddha says. I will not leave this world until I have, tr uh, until I have established uh, a parisa, an assembly, a community. It's much like sangha, a parisa, an assembly of, of, of adherents, men and women adherents, men and women mendicants, who, have, who I have taught the Dharma, who have trained in the Dharma, who have practiced the Dharma, and who teach the Dharma. Now what's striking about that passage is that not only does it say from the very beginning that he intended to ordain women, this passage is often cited in favor of this idea that the Buddha uh, was ordaining women right from the beginning, 
not something that came along later, and then he had to add these heavy sexist rules, which is the standard story. But also, it's, it states very clearly that he saw his assembly as one that in which uh, men and women, monastics and lay people, or mendicants and adherents alike would be responsible for studying, practicing, training in, and teaching the Dharma. He's not saying, I'm going to establish a Dharma of monks and nuns who will teach the lay people. doesn't say that at all. Uh, it's across the board. There's a complete equality here. And I wonder if that doesn't perhaps represent um, you know, his original vision. And it's striking that in the Pali version of the story of the awakening, uh, this passage is, is left out. And it only recurs at the very end of the Buddha's life in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, where Mara comes to him again after he's nearly died during the last rains retreat. And then he says, now is the time, and he says exactly the same thing. He says, now is the time to enter the final nirvana. Because, this is Mara speaking to the Buddha, you now have trained, uh, you've trained a community of monks and nuns, lay men and lay women, who have been educated, who have practiced, and who teach the Dharma. So use exactly that same phrase, that same statement. Um, and the, then the Buddha says, do not worry, evil one, my, de my, uh, my, my departure will not be long delayed. So in other words, he acknowledged, yeah, he's done this now. So I feel that this passage of Mahanama uh, and these 21 uh, is a glimpse into um, a period um, uh, or the Buddha's world in which um, these qualities, these insights, these accomplishment of these four tasks, this stream entry is as much the province of the adherents as it is the mendicants. And these are the people, perhaps, he had in mind who might build his city of contingency, this secular city um, which lies at the end of this eightfold path rather than the nirvana, which is usually stated. But here in this parable, as we've mentioned, um, this is a way of life that leads to the uh, the emergence or the re-emergence uh, of a civilization or a culture which will entail you know, both monastics as well as people who are adherents. It's a, it's a, it's a fourfold sangha here uh, of um, different lifestyles, obviously, but with comparable insights, comparable uh, qualities of uh, awakening. But what happens to Buddhism, as I think probably to Christianity and to, and to other religions, is that over time that kind of liberative, all-encompassing sense of a community um, gets lost and in its place um, we have a gradual separation
between um, the lay people and the experts, the monks and the nuns. And what happens in Buddhism is that instead of becoming wandering mendicants, the monks and the nuns become increasingly cenobitic. They live in monasteries. Um, they become rather cut off from the world in many ways. And the lay people become, uh, have the role basically of support, supporting these institutions, um, uh, collect doing good works, um, receiving pastoral care uh, from the monastics. But um, over time, a gap tends to open up, a sense of difference, which is in conflict, I feel, with this original vision. Now, a person who I think has shed great light onto this process is the German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach. Feuerbach was a, was a student of, of Hegel. Um, he lived in the early part of the 19th century and uh, sometime, I think, in the 1840s, he published a book called uh, Das Wesen des Christentums, the essence of Christianity. And for Feuerbach, um, his understanding of religion is necessarily seen through his understanding of the Christian church. He sees uh, the church basically as what he calls a structure of alienation. In other words, um, the, uh, the, the church becomes uh, a privileged um, uh, place of the priesthoods, the uh, religious authorities, who take to themselves, uh, identify themselves with the highest values of the tradition. Uh, that is where love and wisdom and power reside. And the ordinary people become increasingly distanced from these qualities uh, because they are actually um, it, they actually have bought into this pattern of projecting them onto the priests. So their own essential nature, which Ludwig Feuerbach thinks of as love, wisdom, and power, these are transferred in a Freudian transference onto these uh, priestly, uh, saintly figures who have the authority and control of the religious institutions. And Feuerbach sees this as essentially alienation, that the ordinary person through the institutions of religion becomes alienated from their own true nature. And they, in a way, give it away. They project it onto others. Now, Feuerbach doesn't mention Buddhism, but um, I don't think we have to think too hard to see that comparable uh, things have gone on in the history of Buddhism too. That the Buddhist uh, church or the Buddhist uh, institutions of religious power likewise tend to become more and more remote from the lives of the ordinary people. Um, the Buddha, likewise, uh, 
becomes more and more like a god, less and less like a person. Um, in the iconography, uh, this figure clearly here is certainly not a human being. Uh, human beings don't have great big fleshy lumps on their head. They don't have all of these 32 major marks. This is a sort of man-god hybrid. Um, we also find that the monks become the Sangha, the community. Uh, this is particularly, it's in all Buddhist traditions, but it's very strong in the Theravada. Um, the monks refer to themselves as the Sangha, and people go to the Sangha to offer them dana. But actually, in doing so, they're affirming that the Sangha, the community, is actually those people who are committed to the monastic life, and you're excluded from the Sangha. Um, I find this kind of offensive, frankly. Um, and yet it's completely normative, it's completely accepted. Um, the teacher, rather than being, as in the early uh, texts, a, uh, a good friend who shows you the path to become uh, independent in your own practice, uh, becomes eventually uh, in, morphs into the guru, uh, into the lama. Lama means guru. Uh, and becomes basically a, a figure of um, enormous uh, prestige, often with charisma, who's raised on a throne um, and uh, is worshipped, effectively. Uh, in the, some of the traditions, the teacher is uh, considered to be um, omniscient and perfect. Uh, this is the, the Vajrayana approach. Uh, and consequently, uh, the ordinary person is that much less enlightened and uh, uh, wise and so on. So the, the, the more that you elevate the the monastic order or the teaching order or whoever it is uh, to greater and greater heights of enlightenment and perfection as a corollary the ordinary man and woman on the street become less and less embodiments of such qualities a gulf and a gap opens up now what happens or has happened historically uh, is when the, this tension, this gap, becomes just too big, the contradiction uh, causes a, a, you know, a breakdown of the system. In Christianity, we get the Reformation with Luther and others who basically say enough of this and return to the primary scriptural sources in Luther's case, translating it into German so that ordinary people could read it, and doing away altogether with the priesthood. Um, in Buddhism, a good example of this uh, reformation occurred in China with the advent of Zen, where again it was a similar kind of split, and the early Chan teachers sought uh, to uh, to leave all that behind and return to the primary experience of the Buddha, namely to you know, pose these deep existential questions and just sit with them as he sat beneath the tree. 
So to emulate the example of the founding figure in a deeply human way with a, and leaving aside all of the trappings of doctrine and uh, orthodoxy and ecclesiastical hierarchy. So you get this famous statement in Zen that Zen is a, a direct transmission of mind to mind independent of words and scripture. In other words, independent of orthodoxy and a direct um, communion with the highest uh, values of awakening. Very similar to Luther's uh, direct, unmediated relationship between the ordinary person and God. You take away the, uh, it's a direct transmission, it's an unmediated relationship. And so in some ways, I think we may be, or at least some of us may be, uh, thinking along lines similar to this, to return to the, to, 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 to go back to an unmediated relationship with the primary teachings, an unmediated relationship with the primary experience of nirvana. And again, people find this shocking. You know, nirvana, surely that's not available. Uh, but that, I think, reflects as much uh, the, the alienation that has set in over the centuries that has concentrated power in the priesthood um, as it does uh, anything else. And yet we've bought into that. Uh, that's become normative. That's become the way we understand these things. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, that... Um, uh, Feuerbach, uh, Feuerbach's analysis of religion was then adopted by Karl Marx. Marx and Engels uh, understood religion in purely Feuerbachian terms. He, Feuerbach gave them their theory. And the famous expression, uh, religion is the opium of the people, comes from Feuerbach. It doesn't come from Marx. So Feuerbach was kind of, you know, we know of him through Marx and, and, and Marxism. I think also, so again, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious that um, uh, what I'm interested in doing is uh, uh, sim something similar. Um, and again, instead of truths and metaphysical, you know, metaphysical truth claims, we come back to tasks, things you can do that can make a difference in your life rather than uh, things you are expected to believe, but the people who actually really understand them are the, are the, you know, the, the enlightened teachers. Uh, coming back to questions rather than answers. Answers, orthodoxy is basically um, a set of um, accepted answers to the great questions of life and death. And as a adherent of that particular orthodoxy, you're expected to believe in those things and somehow accept them and bring your life into accordance with those beliefs. What gets forgotten are the questions that gave rise to those orthodoxies in the first place. And here we get again in Zen, uh, returning to the fact of the primary mystery and questionableness of the human situation of birth and death. What is this? What does it mean? 
What can I do? Get back to that question and start again. And so instead of the authority of the, of the teacher, one shifts that to the authority of the Dharma, which is what the Buddha suggested in the first place, that when after I'm dead, he says, do not think you will not have a teacher, you will have a teacher, the Dharma will be your teacher. So the Dharma becomes the teacher, not a particular person. And the medium for this teaching, for the Dharma, becomes that of friendship and community. That becomes the medium in which the teachings are embodied by others, communicated, uh, but through matrices of friendships rather than through relationships of hierarchical power. And in this respect also, this is perhaps going more on to our contemporary situation, um, to think of the Dharma more, as more akin to the practice of an art rather than the application of a set of techniques that are more akin to uh, a practice of the sciences. Um, I th this might seem to be going off on a somewhat different tangent, but I don't think it is. Um, because what is distinctive about the arts is the valorization of the imagination. Now, the imagination um, is, is, is potentially subversive and dangerous. Uh, if you are willing to imagine, if you're encouraging people to uh, imagine, uh, to activate their imaginations, that's in a sense giving permission to think things differently, to imagine another way of doing things. And um, usually uh, this is felt by those in power to be, uh, to be potentially threatening to get, let people think for themselves, to come up with um, alternative ways of practicing, uh, to question uh, the basic assumptions of the tradition of the orthodoxy. This is not encouraged. And going back to the passage in the Dhammapada, which is in your handout at the very end, which I've repeated several times already, the idea that um, the wise person trains themselves like a farmer irrigating a field, a fletcher creating an arrow, uh, a carpenter shaping a piece of wood. This is again very much about, um, about, about creativity. You're creating something. You're taking a raw material and you're turning it into something else. Uh, this is again exactly what goes on in the artistic process. You take raw materials like paint or clay or musical notes or the human body um, and, you, and, and you imagine uh, those things in other forms and you then set out to create those forms. Uh, you, whether that be in the form of a poem or a piece of literature or a painting or a sculpture or a play or a film, it doesn't really matter. But what uh, many people, well, artists obviously, consider to be the most 
a fulfilling, fulfilling way of existing is by engaging in this creative transformative process uh, in their work. Uh, and that's very different from uh, identifying a problem and then devising a solution to resolve that problem and then uh, applying those techniques so that the problem can then be solved. And, and I think Buddhism is often unthinkingly presented in that, uh, in that optique. Uh, life, uh, dukkha is a problem uh, and the Dharma is a technique that can solve that problem so the problem disappears and then you get uh, enlightenment. Uh, so it's not just about a way of thinking that's characteristic of our technological society. It's a way of thinking that I think uh, human beings are prone to, probably in all cultures. But I, it's, it, I think it's an enormously seductive um, model uh, for those of us who live in a technological age. Uh, we, just, we, we, we very naturally think of meditation as a technique failing to see that technique, technology, it's the same word really. And we can solve the problem of uh, sickness, aging and death by getting rid of them, which is exactly what traditional Buddhism says. The liberation, the final nirvana is when birth, birth, sickness, aging and death don't happen anymore. The problem is solved. Um, that's the standard view. Um, but if we don't, well, for a start, what that means obviously is that you'll only reach that goal after death, which is again the traditional view actually. They distinguish between what they call nirvana with remainder and nirvana without remainder. Remainder means the body. So you can experience nirvana in this body, but it's still somehow weighed down and compromised by being physically, uh, by being tied to the, phys to the physical uh, experience. It's only when you die that you attain complete nirvana. Um, frankly, that doesn't sound like a huge amount of fun. The, um, it, it's a hard sell, too. It, it's, uh, <laughs> it's much... Uh, more compelling to say that after you die you enter into the cosmic mind of Brahma and you live in eternal bliss. Um, but that's not actually what the Buddhists uh, suggest. Um, so again, I've found in my own practice that to think of my practice basically as a work of art, as, as, as an art project. And the raw materials of this project are my body, my feelings, my perceptions, my inclinations, my consciousness. In other words, the five aggregates are basically like the clay of uh, the practice. That your life becomes the raw material for the art of your dharma. Um, and so this gives great um, emphasis uh, to uh, creativity, to imagination, to um, transformation um, in such a way that your life becomes uh, something that uh, becomes exemplary. Again, we saw this morning how 
the person who practices care um, manifests that care through their deeds and their work and their life. And that is what uh, inspires others and, in a sense, teaches uh, how this core value can be realized, not by having to say anything about it, but by living it, but by embodying it. And it's in that sense too, I think, that the practice is as much about how we lead our life as an example as opposed to what kind of uh, private uh, enlightenment or insight we might have gained that's purely our own and has little or nothing to uh, show to others. Uh, there is a Mahayana Buddhist doctrine that I think is very helpful here uh, that I do feel is a very, a, a very good development of these early teachings that is not found in the Pali Canon. And that's the doctrine of the Trikaya, the three bodies of the Buddha, uh, is uh, how it's usually translated, which is the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Nirmanakaya, which mean literally the Dharma body, which refers to the subjective dimension of awakening, what you alone are aware of, your inner experience. But for in awakening to be complete in this model, it requires um, being embodied and incarnated in the world, the nirmanakaya, which means the literally the... Um, the manifestation body or something like that. And between the two is something called the Sambhogakaya, which is like the kind of the, the archetypal body, a kind of intermediate zone of symbols, values, ideas, that then needs to be given fleshly form in an actual human life. So if you think of it in terms of the Tibetan tradition, the Dharmakaya would be, let's say, the, the, the subjective experience of, let's say, compassion, the archetypal form that represents that is in one of these bodhisattvas, Avalokiteshvara, Jenrezi, uh, which is a kind of sim symbolic manifestation of compassion. But that, to be real, needs to find form in an actual human life let's say, the Dalai Lama, who's understood as a manifestation of Avalokiteshvara, who is the symbolic representation of uh, compassion. Now, um, I find that very, uh, a, a very valuable um, way of looking at things. Because what it shows is that awakening is not a subjective state that some people have and some people don't. It, it is only made, um, it, it is only reaches completion when it is embodied in a form uh, of a human person interacting with others in a social and historical moment. So in some senses, the Buddha's awakening uh, didn't occur under the Bodhi tree. It started there but it achieved uh, completion only when he began to teach. So the Buddha's first discourse is in effect the, uh, the culmination 
or the completion of this process of awakening. Um, something very similar was said uh, um, in a book, a memoir published a few months ago by Philip Glass called Words Without Music. And um, he describes uh, how a piece of music is completed by the performance and the audience. Uh, that it doesn't exist in some sort of abstract realm or as a set of notations. It only actually is, uh, becomes complete, becomes real, becomes finished when it's um, performed to an audience. I don't know whether you would agree with that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, performed well, let's say. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's a similar, I mean, possibly he picked that idea up from. He's a Buddhist. He's a Tibetan Buddhist. So he might have got that idea from here. I don't know. The, um, but nonetheless, I think the, uh, the model is a very useful one. Um, because it's, it shows that the practice is one of a continuous... Uh, mo you know, starting within our own inspiration, our own thoughts, our own awareness and then uh, achieving a concrete expression or form in the world. Uh, that is what constitutes uh, this practice of awakening. And the same basic pattern is described in the Eightfold Path. The, 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 the complete vision is where it starts, which we looked at, uh, this experience of... Uh, of, uh, which is of emptiness, let's say, uh, this transcendence of is and is not. That's where the path begins. And then it progressively finds form, first in intentions or thoughts, then in speech, then in acts, and then in work or livelihood. So you see the same progression from inner to outer through a series of intermediate stages. So again, that same pattern is there. That the practice is not something that's just to do with my personal experience at all, but it has to do with the constant unfolding and embodiment of that insight, that understanding, that thought, that moment of compassion. It has to find form, it has to find uh, embodiment and expression in the world. Finally, um, I think all Buddhists are secular Buddhists. <laughs> because um, Buddhism, however it is practiced, however it is uh, um, uh, justified, um, is done so because it enables us to cope and come to terms with living in this world here and now. So if you believe in reincarnation, different lifetimes and different realms of existence and some grandiose vision of becoming enlightened over eons of time and radiating your wisdom to beings throughout the universe, which is fine, it's a beautiful picture, you do that, you hold that view because it makes your life on this, in this body, in this world, now, uh, meaningful. You don't actually know that you're going to get reborn. Nobody knows that. 
You can believe it, but the reason you believe it is in order to make this life meaningful. In other words, it's about coming to terms with the conditions of our time, our world, here and now. So in that sense, it has to do with being a secular person, at least in the sense of belonging to this time and this age. Another, um, another th uh, aspect of the secular has been brought out by the Dalai Lama recently in his book, Beyond Religion. <laughs> not, I'm not the only person talking about this. <laughs> the, the, uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is no one less than the Dalai Lama himself. Beyond Religion, and he's, he's, he starts out by celebrating and endorsing the idea of secularity. His word. I'm not putting it in his mouth. And his idea of the secular, though, is inspired by his, um, his knowledge of the Indian constitution, which is a secular constitution. And the secular space that the founders of the Indian Republic imagined was primarily one um, of tolerance, tolerance of religious difference, which is crucial to India. Uh, I think to all societies, but particularly to India. And so for the Dalai Lama, he's picked up this idea that a secular ethics, again, I think that's his word, is one that is premised on as a space of, of, of tolerance of difference. That's what secular means for him. I think that's very, I think that's very insightful, actually, and very valuable. Um, and it gives another dimension to what we mean by secular. Secular means a, a willingness to tolerate religious difference, not, which is the very opposite of rejecting religion and choosing to be secular instead. Um, maybe that's a good point to end. I was going to read out my ten theses of secular dharma, but I think I'll do that tomorrow morning. Uh, Jean. Oh, microphone. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.